welcome everyone. Um, Pastor Johnny, of course, is um, out recovering, hopefully speedily, um, and will be back with us next week. Uh, but in the meanwhile, um, the Lord continues to draw us together and move us forward. There's kingdom work to be done. Um, so we're glad to be here. Um, and I'm glad and honored to be here as well to bring forth the message in the word today. So for those of you who, who might be unfamiliar with me, um, I'm a member of Joy Christian Center. All of those who are in the room here today understand that. But those of you who might be online, um, been a member of Joy Christian Center for a while here, uh, for, for several years. Um, and God has taken us uh, through many places, through many seasons. Um, and here we are today, uh, still standing, still standing strong for the Lord. Um, and we continue to pray that God would use us um, no matter what, no matter when. Um, all it takes is a willing heart and a body who's willing to step out in faith. And, and Lord, let that be us today. So today, I'm going to be uh, talking to us, presenting uh, from the word um, in line with uh, what we've been focused on over the Easter season. So I'll be talking and speaking from the, the Gospel of John um, after the resurrection. But just by way of introduction, um, we're in this really interesting time of, of the church calendar between Resurrection Sunday, Easter, um, and what's known as Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit shows up amongst the disciples, they speak in tongues and they're empowered and they go out into the world to spread the gospel. And they eventually, you know, take the world by storm, uh, bringing the kingdom message. Um, and all of us are here today as a result of that message from 2000 years ago, um, based on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and, and what God did with just a small group of people in a very different context in time that wasn't held by that context or time because it spanned time, it spanned place, and here we are today. A lot of times, though, we talk about this season that we're in and we, we sort of anticipate, okay, we're going to get towards Pentecost Sunday. We're going to have sermons um, that, that talk about the empowerment of God's people and the spread of the gospel. Um, when we think back on scriptures um, and those accounts in terms of how those, those things unfolded and we, we see how God does a lot with just 12 men, how the world is changed by just 12 men, just a small group makes a huge difference. And based on how we typically tell this story, oftentimes we tell it in a way where we can miss the fact there was actually more than just 12 men who made an impact and changed the world. All of God's people, all of Christ's followers at that time had a vitally important role to play in what was about to happen in terms of everybody being sent out to spread the gospel. Even the people who we think might be secondary characters. And what I mean by that is people who we may not necessarily associate with, uh, you know, the apostles going out. Um, maybe we might think that, okay, they had a minor role because maybe they show up in scripture. Maybe they don't, maybe they were named, maybe they weren't. Um, and I want us to just pause with that because I want us to look at the fact that even though we focus in on this small band of men who then go out into the world to make this change based on the power of, of God, God actually was using many, many people to do that. God was actually using some of the very people 
who we might not think about or who we might actually overlook because we tend to focus on just the 12. There are a group of women. There was elderly people who were retired, who were in Jerusalem. There were a number, there were children involved. There were a number of people that because they were Christ followers, they were recruited into the kingdom mission and God used them and everybody was vitally important. In order for the mission, kingdom mission to be accomplished, everybody has a role. So I'm gonna start with an opening illustration here, um, which I think those of us in the room are actually old enough to remember. Um, this actually occurred before I was born. Uh, so if you were a baby at the time, you won't remember. Uh, but how many people remember early 1960s? Anybody remember that? Okay, some people remember the early 1960s. We all remember, probably no matter what age we are, the name John Glenn. John Glenn was an astronaut. He was the first American to actually circle the globe. He did so three times in 1962. He went on and was a part of many... Uh, NASA missions, um, died recently an American hero, um, rightfully so, rightfully so. And in looking at just those early years of the, of the space program and NASA and John Glenn's role, something very interesting. We tend to make heroes and, and focus on, um, you know, the people who we give the spotlight to, like the John Glenns, rightfully so. But there are also many, many other people who are really vitally important to make all of that possible. And John Glenn actually illustrated that uh, just in an exchange right before he went on the mission that made him famous. So 1962, the NASA scientists, the heads of NASA determined, you know, this is the time that we're gonna actually go ahead and send, you know, Colonel Glenn up into space um, for this mission to circle the globe. He'll be the first American to do so. And so just in the process, all the preparation work was done. And ultimately they come and they say, okay, the weather's right. Everything should be good. They come to Colonel Glenn and say, Colonel Glenn, the time is right. It's time for you to go. Rather than just saying yes and getting, getting ready to go, John Glenn paused for a moment. The dangers of space travel, especially back then, they didn't have huge computers to do all this computing. They didn't have the tools and instruments that we have today. The question that he asked, the question that he came back to the NASA heads was, was this. Well, what did the girls say? What did the girls say? Now, if you've ever seen the movie Hidden Figures, you know that that's actually a reference to a number of women who are part of the space program that never got the spotlight for decades. Nobody knew who they were. But these were the women who actually did the mathematics by longhand because they didn't have the computing power back then to determine whether or not this launch could actually work, if it would actually be successful. Particularly, we're talking about a few women, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, a lady named Christine Darden, and a lady named Dorothy Vaughn. And these were women who, who weren't in those conversations and discussions is when the decisions were made. These were women who were usually sequestered into the back rooms. Uh, these women were actually African-American women, so they, they actually even didn't have access to the facilities that, that the coworkers did. Um, it was the early 1960s. It was, a, it was an interesting time in this country's history. But these heads of NASA actually had to go and consult these women. John Glenn would not actually go until he had heard something from these women. And so they went and they consulted these women and they bring the answer back. The women say, it's safe. At which point then John Glenn said, 
then I'll go. And the rest, aerospace history. Circles the globe, becomes the hero. And for 30, 40 years, nobody knows about these women. But the message that these women gave was vitally important to the overall mission. Just like that, I want us to hold on to the idea that the message that God gives members of the body is vitally important to the overall kingdom mission. And the very people who we may not necessarily think as sort of being in the center or having the importance are the very people who God centers and gives particular messages to which are vitally important to the kingdom mission. And we'd be wise if we were like John Glenn and not actually leave them out, exclude them, dismiss them, but actually bring them into the fold, understand the importance of the mission, understand the importance of their message. The title of this sermon is called, What Do the Women Say? I'm not gonna use what do the girls say when a different time, what do the women say? We're gonna look at John chapter 20, which is Mary Magdalene and a number of women who actually go to the tomb after Jesus' death and they encounter an empty tomb. And oftentimes we may read this passage and miss that there is something actually really important in a particular message that Jesus actually gave Mary Magdalene and a commission that he gave her to go and actually tell the disciples something very in particular. And so I want us to just pause and chew on this for a moment because it actually has a, a, a great significance, I think, for us today. Um, if we can actually chew on it, similar to what the disciples were supposed to do with this message, chew on it and understand some things that underlie it. What do the women say? John 20, verses 11 through 18. It reads, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabuna, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. So what is this message? What is the importance of this message that Jesus tells Mary that she is to go and tell the disciples? And we read in the passage here, the message is, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And yes, she was obedient, and she went and she spread that to the disciples. Now, we can understand, and those of us who, who know the passages and who know the scripture, of course, 
when Jesus says he's ascending to the Father, we know that in 40 days from this point, he would actually ascend up into heaven before the disciples' very eyes disappear. And now we're waiting for him to return. And that's where we are today. But I would have us pause and maybe consider, could there be something more to that? Could there be more dimensions to this? Why is it that Jesus would need to have that, this message be conveyed to the disciples at the particular time it was, if in 40 days they were going to witness it anyway, just 40 days away? Let's take a closer look. If you would uh, turn to, if you'd like, or, or just bear with me as I read and set the stage. Um, Jesus as our high priest in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Ascending to the Father. Jesus ascended to the Father 40 days later. But there were some things going on in the course of that 40 days that Jesus was involved with. And could his saying actually be something that the disciples needed to hear that pertained to what was going on in those 40 days prior to him making, I would say, the final ascent to the Father? Hebrews chapter 9 actually tells us, starting in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence that is called the holy place. Verse 3 says, behind the second curtain was a tent called the holy of holies. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the table of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. And if we jump over to verses 11 through 12, it says, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 passed Jesus as the high priest. And as the high priest, in order to understand what the role of the high priest was, you kind of have to know something about the Jewish tradition and culture, which the disciples did. Jesus as high priest actually refers to some specific duties and roles that the priest actually had before, before the people. And if we go back to the Old Testament, all of the disciples, because all the disciples were Jewish, they were Israel. So they grew up understanding, following these observances, really understanding the role of the priest historically and in their time. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to do a paraphrase. But if you want to actually go back and, and study this, just one verse is actually talking about the role that the priest actually had before the people. And that was three things. The priests actually bore the ark. They carried the ark of the covenant. They actually ministered before the Lord. And then finally, they actually blessed the people until this day, it says in chapter, in chapter 10, verse 8. They had three tasks. Carry the ark. And only they could carry the ark. Minister before the Lord. 
and only they could do that. That is, they would go into the tabernacle and into the temple, particularly certain times of year, and offer sacrifices for the people, and then bless the people, actually speak blessings upon Israel. I want to go through each of these because I think there's tremendous implication. If we then think back to our passage in terms of Jesus ascending to the Father, Jesus fulfilling the role of priest to, for us, for all of humanity, and what that actually meant by understanding what it actually meant in Old Testament. There's a divine plan and template in play that when then Mary brings this message to the disciples, they're supposed to get this. The first task of the priest is to carry the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones, right? We all know that movie, hopefully. In this country, we, we've seen it. Um, I actually know some people who haven't, who are my age. I don't understand that. But fascinating movie. Um, they do a really cool job of actually conveying that this Ark, this, this box that was constructed based on God's blueprint that God told Moses back when the children of Israel had left Egypt and they were actually wandering around in the desert and God was establishing this nation. And a part of the ark was to actually go before them because it represented God's presence with them. But within the ark were placed some particular things, some key things that, that we find that were in the ark. If we look at and remember Hebrews chapter nine in which we read, it said in verse four, in it, that is in the ark, there was, the, there was the ark covered on all sides with gold in which there was a golden urn holding the manna. It's the first thing that's mentioned in the Hebrews passage that we read. Within the ark, there was manna. And if you remember the story about the manna, the children of Israel out in the desert, wandering around, what do they eat? What do they drink? And this becomes obviously a primary concern. So Moses, you brought us out here just to starve us. We'd rather be back in Egypt where we had leeks and onions and all that stuff was not true, right? But how, 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 how tempted we can be to go backwards to bad situations when God actually calls us to step out in faith and to trust him. And that's a real struggle, not just for them, but what we actually deal with today. Was this a message for the disciples that they needed to contemplate and chew on? Absolutely, because what that manna actually represented was God actually took care of and provided for his people, even in the midst of a wilderness experience that would last 40 years where they did not necessarily know where their next meal was going to come from. God's point was, I will provide where I will be guided. And that's a principle and a message that I think we need to actually hold on today. God provides where God guides. God protects where God directs. The manna, therefore, actually represents God's provision in the midst of maybe not knowing, maybe not feeling that you've got all the things that you might need as you step out in faith. God doesn't actually call, call us to actually have everything sort of in the U-Haul that we're gonna need for the journey. God actually calls us to pack light and trust him for what might be needed because all it takes is faith. Now it does take preparation. Okay? So faith is not necessarily the plan. That is the foundation on which the plan is made. 
the what God tells you in terms of the particulars, you do. But it always involves us having to stretch out in faith and trust God. And so an illustration of this really came to me because um, those of you who know me, you know that I travel quite a bit. And one of the things that I've learned in, in my own experience of what makes me anxious when I travel and, and what gives me a little bit more peace. I've learned that in traveling to different countries that I do, here, here's what I've realized about the airlines, God bless them. Um, oftentimes they, they actually make errors. Oftentimes there's problems where they should not be problems. And I realize their systems, either they're antiquated or maybe, you know, they just, they need some help. So I've been on several occasions seated on the airplane. So this assumes that you get there and you're on the plane and the plane's actually there to take off. So once I'm on the plane, here, here's what I've noticed about myself. When I'm actually going someplace and I bring a lot of luggage, a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff that I, that I think I'm gonna need when I get to the place where I'm gonna arrive. And I can't bring that stuff on the plane because it's too much. So, so I'll pack it into a large suitcase or a couple of suitcases. I will watch as they load the suitcases on the plane. I'll watch through the window because there've been many times, and I do mean many times, where I will watch, the people drive up with all the luggage on the cart. They will start loading the suitcases on the conveyor belt that go into the bottom of the plane. I will spot my luggage on the cart. And then for some reason, they stop loading everything onto the plane. Maybe the plane is full and they drive away. And what is still on the cart that they're driving away with? My luggage. It has happened numbers, numbers of times. And so I'll arrive to my destination and now I'm sitting in the plane and I've got probably a 24 hour ride sometimes. And I'm in my head thinking, what in the world am I gonna do? I'm gonna get there and if, if they haven't put my luggage on a different plane, um, am I gonna be here without any luggage? And how long am I gonna be there? And if they do put it on a different plane, when is that plane gonna arrive? I don't have a way to get back to the airport where I'm going, the places that I go. I'm, I'm in my head about all of this stuff. And oftentimes I've been places where I just didn't, my luggage didn't arrive until it's time for me to leave to come home the day before. I've been in those situations. Contrast that with what I've learned when I actually travel light. So, so I've got uh, really good in-laws and, and one of the things that they've given me for a gift is, is this duffel bag that I can actually bring on the plane with me. And it holds a good, a good amount of stuff, but it all fits in the duffel bag if I pack light and pack right. And so I find that when I actually use that double bag, instead of putting everything in suitcases that I got to actually pack into the bottom of the plane and I pack light and know that, okay, I've got enough to get me through the journey for the first few days and anything that I might need when I get there, I'll figure it out. I'll get there and I'll figure out how to, how to do it. That's a very different experience for me when I'm on the plane, because what I'm not doing is I'm not focused out of the window looking for my bags. What I'm not doing is wondering, okay, if we have a layover, if I got to switch planes, is my are my bags going to switch the planes too? I'm not in my head about any of that. And when I get to the des destination, I get on and I get off much more quickly. I'm not waiting for bags. When, when I wait for bags and people are there to meet me, often I've been left because the bags delay. Um, all sorts of things, all sorts of mishaps don't happen when I travel light. And trust that, you know what, when I get there, we'll figure it out. And I'm not traveling foolish, by the way. I'm being received by people. I've been in situations when my bags don't arrive. And you know what? I eat every day, even if I don't have money, because there have been situations where, where my money has been stolen or whatever. I go to some really 
interesting places where those things happen. People always step forward and, and, and I'm, I'm, God's got me. God has got me. Never once have I encountered anything where I haven't been able to come back and report a good report that things have gone well, even when I don't have what I think I need going into it. And what I take from that is basically, I think what the disciples and what the children of God were, were showing the whole time, which is it's the right place to be when you actually have to trust God for whatever it is that might unfold that you might need. The disciples would absolutely need to chew on that message as God would send them out to various towns, to various regions, to various countries, spreading the gospel. And God instructed them to travel light. Jesus said, don't take a ton of stuff. Just take the stuff on your back, what you need, you know, and God will provide. And that's the type of faith that lets us know that we're right where we need to be, because it may seem like that might be nerve wracking for a lot of us. But to be honest, if you really think about your experiences, when you bring a lot of baggage and a lot of stuff, now you're worried about, is my stuff still there? Is my stuff being stolen? Am I attracting attention and do I become a target because I'm carrying so much stuff? We're in a very different headspace at that point. So recognize the qualitative difference in terms of when God is actually instructing us to go out into the world and to bring the message, God is not saying bring a lot of baggage. God is saying actually travel light. You're going to need this because it's going to put you in a position of having to trust in me for anything that may come along. And this is what I can hold by faith and pass along to you, which was passed along to me just in terms of my own upbringing in, in the congregation that I've been a part of as, as a young person. You may not have what you want. You may not have all that you think you may need. But if you've got Jesus, Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. And he proves it time and time again. So that is what the manna actually represents that the disciples hopefully would chew on from the message. The second thing that is within the ark that we read in Hebrews is actually Aaron's rod that budded. Now, do you know that story? Aaron, who was the cousin of Moses, so back when the children of Israel were freed from bondage in Egypt and traveling around in the desert, Aaron served as the first high priest for, for the children of Israel. And, and while God was establishing this people as a nation, they went through all sorts of fits and starts because, you know, they're, they're getting to understand, you know, God's plan and having to sort of stretch out in faith and, and trust God for their provision, which was not easy, obviously. And many of the chiefs of the different tribes 12 tribes, many of the leaders came to Moses grumbling, complaining, saying, you know, Moses, how is it that you have set yourself and Aaron up as the leaders? We're all worthy. So if you look at Numbers chapter 16 and 17, that's, that's this passage. We're all God's people. Why do you two get to sort of be in the lead? Why do you have sort of this position of authority? Again, complaining. And so God brings a solution. God says, Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to go and you, you, grab, you gather a, a staff from each of the 12 tribes. And I want you to just place them before me overnight and come back and see what it looks like in the morning and, and how I move based on these staffs that represent the 12 tribes. Since everybody's wondering, well, who should be an authority? Why should you? I'm going to decide so that they can actually see. And so he actually gets from each tribe one of the staffs. 
from, from one of the elders. They take Aaron's staff that represents the Levites. And so they put it before God. And the next morning when Moses comes to, to the tent, to the tabernacle, what we find is that you've got these walking sticks, all 12 of them, all 12 of them there. But there's something different about Aaron's walking stick at that point. The next day, Aaron's walking stick has actually sprouted. A dead stick has now sprouted, and there's blooms, and, and the scripture says there's actually ripe almonds that have actually happened in 24 hours coming out of Aaron's staff. And this is what the entire people actually witness. And by this act, God actually answers the question and establishes sort of the spiritual authority that God has actually given to Aaron in Aaron's position so that all could actually recognize and see this. So when we think about the importance of Aaron's budding rod and why that's a part of the ark and why do the disciples need to maybe consider this, this is what God uses as his message to convey there is spiritual authority that I've actually given you. And that spiritual authority is not based on flash or how well you speak or what your educational background is. That spiritual authority is based on the fruit that you actually see, the fruit that God will actually bring about, the buds, the almonds that God will actually cause to happen when you move according to how God directs you. And if we think about that for a moment, think of if any of you are farmers or know anything about almond trees, if you want to make a lot of money quickly as a farmer, you don't plant almonds. You don't plant almond trees. Almond trees take up to 12 years before they'll, before they'll produce any fruit. That is a, what they call a long-term plan if you actually want to go into farming and, and make money doing almond farming. Isn't that interesting that it can take up to 12 years to produce almonds? 12. How many, how many staffs? How many, how many different tribes there were? And this is the very fruit that God caused to actually be ripe in a 24-hour period. And so why might the disciples, why might we need to chew on something like that? Well, number one, yes, God has sent them out and God will send them out and, and grants them spiritual authority. But what do we need to consider with this? We need to probably understand that what we need to learn to look for in terms of who God sends is not flash. It's not the accolades, it's actually the fruit. We need to learn to actually distinguish fruit, those whom God is actually using and has given the spiritual authority, which may not always be the tallest, the handsomest, the most well-dressed, you know? It, it doesn't fit often who we may see on television, who comes across well. It fits who God selects. And God oftentimes will send to the very people who we will look past and look beyond. But this is an important thing for the disciples to understand, an important thing for us to take today as well. The third thing that's in the ark, according to Hebrews, is the actual Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, we all know this story. God sends Moses up the mountain. God, with God's own hand, writes in the tablets that he commands Moses to bring up these stone tablets. Moses comes down the mountain not to people who are like, thank you, God, and thank you, Moses, for bringing us the Ten Commandments. He comes down to a golden calf. Moses gets upset. He throws down the stones. He breaks them. They're crushed. God sends Moses back up the mountain, even in the face of people's rebellion. Bring me some more tablets. God rewrites the Ten Commandments. God is merciful, even in the face of our sin. But 
what is actually contained in the ark is the truth of God's word. Despite our sinfulness, despite our, for, our shortcomings, it is the truth of God's word that we are to actually represent as we go forward. And so often we think of the disciples as you know, fishermen, people who might not necessarily be the most educated. So, so maybe they don't have the education necessarily that the scribes and the Pharisees would. But the fact that God wrote in God's own hand, his word on the tablets, God writes in God's own hand, his word on our heart. And that's what they needed to internalize and have then go out into the world with, bringing the truth of God's word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, divides asunder between the soul and the spirit. Very different than what the world actually offers us. God, through his word, consistently is telling us he wants to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. He is the one who dictates and tells us what is right and wrong. It's the world system that basically says we get to determine what is right and wrong. And when we think back to the Garden of Eden and, and Adam and Eve, they were placed in this garden and they were only given one instruction in terms of prohibition, and that is do not eat of a particular tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And, and oftentimes when we chew on those verses and meditate on it, we come away with the sense that that, that tree, that knowledge of good and evil actually represents human beings, men and women, men and women, taking into their own hands, determining what is right and wrong. And so they take of the fruit and do the very thing that God asked them not to do. Because they determined that the fruit was good and it'd be good to eat, even though God said, don't do it. And this is the world system that we're left with. And, and we all know in this country's context, we encounter this on a daily basis. People who, you know, are, are living their everyday lives and, and they may not necessarily be evil and wicked people in terms of things that we would label as evil and wicked, but, but everybody has sin. And when we have sin and we can't see straight because we have sin, but yet we're the very people who are trying to determine and, de and define what is right and wrong based on our own, how we see things, we're, we're destined to get into some problems. We're destined to get down some, some cul-de-sacs that just aren't very fruitful. And, and we can see that in our society. We can see that in all societies. And so a really important piece that comes along with what the priests bring, what Jesus actually represents, in the role of priest going before the Father on our behalf is God's word written on our hearts, bringing the truth of God's word to a world that might be antithetical to it. Now, we don't just stop there. There is a fourth thing that even though it's not within the ark, because those are the three things that are within the ark, the fourth thing that's mentioned here in Hebrews is the actual cover of the ark. And that is the mercy seat. So those of you who have seen Indiana Jones, if you remember back to what that box, the ark actually looked like, the top of the box was this lid and it had two angels with wings that sort of stuck out. And in between the wings, that's where the presence of God was supposed to sit. And in the movie, if you looked at that, if you, if you actually opened that box and looked at that's when problems happen, right? Because, because sinful people cannot obviously live and see God, that, that's movie version. But that's reality. So God's presence actually rested amongst his people there between those two angels. Mercy. 
if you think about what is the most prominent thing about the ark when you see it coming, it's not what's inside of it because that's inside of it. It's what's on top of it. It's those angels, it's those wings, it's the mercy seat. Mercy, grace and mercy is the thing that is the hallmark, is sort of the most salient hallmark feature of what the ark actually brings. And so while we absolutely do go in the truth of God's word, we must also hold simultaneously mercy, the grace that actually God gives us. Because were it not for his grace and mercy and just for his truth, condemnation. Truth without mercy and grace, condemnation. Mercy and grace without truth, compromise. God says we actually need to hold both. Both of these things need to be kept front and center. And so when we think about the mercy seat, hearken back to our passage in John and begin to now consider and chew on some things about Christ being high priest in this moment and what that might've meant in terms of the task. Think about the mercy and the mercy seat. And think about two angels sitting at two opposite ends and in between is the very presence of God. And what is it that Mary actually saw when she looked into the tomb in verse in chapter 20? She actually saw two angels sitting, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus actually body would have been laying. These are the things that Jewish folks would actually begin to associate and understand in terms of the significance of that, which if, if we don't have that context, we, we, we miss all of it. We, we miss the significance of that. In addition to bringing the ark, and, and I'll say it this way, wherever the ark goes, mercy goes, it's very prominent. Wherever the ark goes, it is the priest who bring it. So if Christ is our high priest, wherever Christ goes, there is mercy. But wherever there is that mercy, there is also the truth of God's word. Wherever the truth of God's word is, there is also the spiritual authority and the fruit that go along with God's movement. And wherever that is, there's also God's provision for his people as we step out in faith. These are the things that come along with that very message that Mary was to deliver, that those Jewish disciples would begin to associate based on them understanding the context. We follow Christ's model. We are priests. It passes on from you don't have to have, you know, genes and be part of the tribe of Levi. You know, Jesus was not part of the tribe of Levi. So he broke that and he gives us the model to follow. So we, in following Christ's model that he gives us, also should be the bearers of mercy, the bearers of truth, the bearers of obviously fruit and the bearers of faith that trust in God for his provision as we go forth. Now, the second thing, if we harken back to, to what are the three things that, that the priests actually bring and what, what are their roles, um, and, and quickly to hit these, when 
priests go and what the priest's job is, especially the high priest, Jesus' role, is to actually make atonement through blood for the sins of the people. So when you look, when you look at the Deuteronomy 10 passage, it, it's talking about that as well. And, and you can look in Leviticus 16, and it actually lays out a lot of the things that go into that process in terms of the high priest serving before God. And he goes, goes in once a year, a special time of year, and he makes atonement. So there's lots of sacrifices that have to happen in order to do that because people are sinful and people's sin need to be forgiven and God's wrath needs to be satisfied or else it'll break out against the people and we won't survive. The high priest is the mediator, mediation between God and the people who have sin. And that was Jesus' role. Jesus, upon the cross, instead of using the blood of rams and bulls, he used his own blood, which was the perfect sacrifice. And so in Hebrews, that's why it's talking about Jesus' sacrifice with his own blood is the blood that actually is the once and for all sacrifice. He's the mediator between God and man, and we've been brought back into relationship. But this is what it means for the priest to actually minister before God on the behalf of the people. So what we do is we are not the mediators between anybody else and God. Jesus actually tore that veil, that veil that was in the temple or in the tabernacle. And that actually represented now that it did not just take the high priest to actually go before God, but it actually gave everybody free access to God to come before God because what Jesus had accomplished in his death and resurrection gave us access to the father. We can all come boldly approach the throne because of what Christ has done. And that's the direction that we point to in our gospel message. Anybody, no matter who you are, by virtue of that, you are a person. God welcomes you into his presence. He beckons you into his presence based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate Easter Resurrection Sunday. We all have access. That's grace and mercy. And finally, the last thing that actually the priests are, priest are responsible for is blessing the people. Deuteronomy 8, blessing the people. Thank God, God actually tells us exactly what that actually means. So, so God didn't just leave us with, oh, go bless the people, because, you know, we come up with all sorts of interesting things. Um, when God says bless the people, God actually gives us a specific thing to do. And if you look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, you don't have to go there, but this is something that I would say definitely write down, but you will absolutely know this verse. You will absolutely know these verses. I'll read them. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Aaron and his sons, the priests saying, thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. We all know this. We, it should sound familiar if you've been in church for longer than a few years. This is a blessing that actually God gave to the priest to actually then pronounce upon the people. This is the blessing often that pastors will pronounce upon the congregation at the end of a service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When we think back then to our passage in John chapter 20, and if you read ahead a little bit, it's very interesting how Jesus then shows up after his resurrection in the presence of the disciples who are locked away usually in a room because things are dangerous and times are tough. And he shows up miraculously. 
And what are his first words? But they're his consistent words to them. Peace be with you. I give you my peace. Consistently, this is what Jesus is saying. Hearkening back to, I give you peace as a part of the blessing that he brings. When we consider John chapter 20 in terms of his interaction with Mary, Mary, who is actually looking in the tomb, she's crying, she's tearful because of all that's happened. And now, wait a minute, the body's not there. Where have they taken him? And then she turns around and she encounters who she thinks is the gardener. Because remember, it's, it's early in the morning, it's first light. So the sun is low on the horizon, but it's rising up and she's got tears in her eyes. And so the, the tears, if you've ever been in this position where, you know, the eyes are full of water and you turn into brightness, you can't really make out who you're seeing. You just sort of see somebody, right? And, and so she just assumes, well, the only person who'd be in the garden tomb would probably this early in the morning would be the gardener. That's what she assumes. She's turning and looking into the sun, S-O-N, that is shining upon her. The sun is also shining upon her. But hold these scriptures in mind. The blessing. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he give you peace. All these things are elements in the passages after Jesus is resurrected in terms of how he's dealing with and interacting with his people, with his disciples, with his followers, including Mary. All the elements are there. These are the things that Jesus is giving them to chew on. Why? Jesus needs them to know some things before they're about to be sent out and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They need to know probably similar to what John Glenn actually needed to know. That all the preparation that needs to go into this mission in order for this mission to actually be achieved is actually done and accomplished. All of that was contained in the simple message that Mary was actually given to give to the disciples. Jesus says, I'm ascending to my father, to your father, to my God, to your God. That ascent would happen 40 days later, but that ascent also was marked by she saw Jesus. She was excited. And as she probably instinctively would go do to try to hug him, Jesus says, don't touch me. He says, I'm not yet ascended to my father. And in the priest role, there is something very, very consistent over those years in terms of purity. The priests have to take a special care before they actually go and approach the throne, before they appear before God, that everything be in order. So much so when it was being done by a human priest that they had to tie a rope and a bell around their foot because if they approached God in the wrong way and, and they didn't follow the purity standards, God would strike them dead. And how would people then go get them if nobody can go in the tent because God's going to strike them dead? Well, the bell stopped moving and then, okay, well, something happened. So let's pull the rope and pull them out of the tent. That's how they had to do it because God was so serious about the purity and what it required to actually stand before him. So Jesus stops Mary from the natural impulse of, of taking a hold of her. And we might think, well, why in the world would, okay, so does that mean Jesus had to go and appear before God somehow? And this was a part of something that they would have understood? I would say yes. I think this is something that they would have actually understood in that context if Jesus is serving in that high priest role. More can be unpacked from that, but, but I think that's a great thing to consider and chew on and really sort of meditate on in devotion time. And in that process, though, we think then, but wait a minute, Jesus came back, scripture says a week later, and some of your passages say eight days later, if you read past our passage, and when he appeared to, to the 12, where Thomas was there, 
And Thomas says, well, I'm not going to believe any of this until I actually touch, put my fingers in the, in the holes and in his side. And Jesus actually invites Thomas to do so. He actually invites Thomas to touch him. So what's going on? Mary can't touch him. Thomas can touch him. So wait a minute. What, what, what's that about? And when we think back in terms of, well, what does scripture actually tell us in the Old Testament in terms of the ordination of the priest? It takes seven days to complete that process. Seven days later, eight days later to be exact, Jesus welcomes the contact. And so these are the things that I would say they understood intuitively because it's resonating with what God has actually shown his people over time. And now Jesus is in this role. And even though he's with them for a short time before he ascends ultimately to the father, these are the things that they actually need to know that Jesus is actually doing some things that are indicative of the way is made. All the work is done. Everything is ready. All systems go. All you need now is just wait for the Holy Spirit to come and empower you. And that'll be the launch. That's your three to one countdown launch. And like John Glenn, I would say they were ready to go as they awaited the, the, the Holy Spirit in the room. These are the things that I put before us that we need today as well. God has actually given us this model. He actually sends us out to actually accomplish this kingdom mission. But in the process, we focus typically on, you know, the pastors or the people who have the big names. But, but God has a place for everybody. Everybody has a vital role in the kingdom mission, whether young, whether old, whether male, whether, whether female, no matter if the world will look down on them and discount them, God actually centers them. So, so if God has actually put something in you that is a part of the calling that you have, you know, I just encourage you, get in touch and flow from that. Even when the world might look down on it or try to discount it, go with God, stick with God with that. And obviously, many times people ask, ask well, you know, who, who am I? You know, what, what is the thing that God would have for me in this great kingdom work? You know, and I would say, you know, get in touch with that. God has actually conveyed some things to you, probably in ways that you haven't quite figured out, but it's very consistent. I'll close with this because it, it's a, such a powerful sort of illustration of being able to identify and get in touch with what is it that God is actually calling you to and, and flowing from that. If any of you know the author, Toni Tony Morrison, um, she was a professor back when I went to college um, and she's an author and she wrote a lot of books um, and some of those books are kind of hard to understand, <laughs> um, but uh, she's, she's a tremendous author. She got a Nobel prize for, for her works that she's done. Um, she's passed on, um, but maybe, maybe a year or two before she died, she died very recently, I think in 2018, 2019. I saw her in 2017. I actually went back to my college they were honoring her because they were naming a building after her. She's retired. And I got a chance to actually see her before she passed away. Um, I don't know her personally, uh, but she's a, she's a tremendous author. She talked about um, in one of the uh, documentaries that were done on her life before she passed, right before she passed, she talked about the fact that even though she doesn't know the reader, even though she doesn't know who's going to be reading the, the words and the messages that, that she writes, she says, but they still are powerful in this way because I don't need to know what you know or what you can relate to. She says, what I need to know is that connection and that contact that, that really, I'm going to paraphrase it, really that, that God has given her. She used this illustration to, to illustrate her point. She says, 
she was once given this assignment, this exercise to do while she was, you know, off traveling someplace. And she said the, the assignment was go into a dark room with a mirror and sit in front of the mirror and just place your hand on the mirror. And she said she did that. She went into a dark room, she turned off the light, she uh, stood in front of a mirror, she put her hand on the mirror, and she described it this way. She said, slowly but surely, she started to see as, you know, the eyes start to adjust this figure on the other side of the mirror. And she says that figure, you know, starts to become more and more in focus. It gets closer, it gets closer, it gets closer until she realizes that that figure is on the other side of that mirror and that figure's hand is up against her hand. She says that contact, that, that moment that is captured there, that contact, that connection, that human connection. She's like, that's what I know. And that's what I flow out of. It. And it doesn't matter what the reader may come with, that's what's on the page. And I would just, I, I hold that because if you understand that even if the world has discounted you, even if the world has treated you as sort of a second, second class citizen, God has still made you in his image. God has still made you and has centered you and lifts you. And when you're made in God's image and you represent God's image and God has given you something that is to be contributed to the kingdom, get in touch with that. And, and just like what Toni Morrison described, when you can see yourself in the way that God actually sees you and ordains you, when you can see God as God created you to be, and you can get in touch with that, flow out of that. That is the, those moments are the moments that you grab hold of and you flow from those places. And your contribution to the kingdom is tremendous and we can't do it without you. All ships rise when all those contributions are on the table. Mary Magdalene made a tremendous contribution because she had a tremendous commission with what God asked her to do. We oftentimes overlook it because it's stuff that we don't understand and it seems like it's very small. But when we actually chew on it and unpack it, it's tremendous. It's what the disciples and all those who were sent out needed to actually anchor themselves in in order to actually accomplish the mission. Amen. With that being said, let us close with prayer and, and we'll have one more song. Um, and we'll be on our way. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that you look not upon us as the world would look upon us, Lord. But Lord, you see the heart, Lord. You see us as you create us to, to be, as you called us to be, Lord. But for those of us who, who would see ourselves as less than who and what you have called and created us to be, Lord, I just pray that you make it so, Lord, in our experience that all things are level at the foot of the cross, Lord. But while, yes, the, the, the haughty and, and those of us who get the accolades need to be brought down and abased and not buy into what the world would tell us in terms of how wonderful and great we are. So we need to be level at the foot of the cross. But there are so many of us, Lord, that the world denigrates, Lord, and you need to bring them up to be level at the foot of the cross, Lord. And I pray that you make it so through your message here today. Lord, enliven us. Give us a fresh indwelling of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Kingdom mission is at stake, Lord, and help us to recognize, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity to participate in your kingdom building. Help us to do so with faith, trusting that you are our provision. Help us to do so knowing, Lord, that you will bring and bear about the fruit as we go so, as we go. Knowing, Lord, that you have put your word on our heart, Lord, let us walk in truth, Lord.
And Lord, above all else, Lord, help us be merciful, Lord, and bring that mercy to a world that so desperately needs to be understood and doesn't realize that you understand and that you know us. Lord, as we go forth, Lord, help us to go forth in the praise and the adoration that we should have of you, Lord, that causes all of our problems and cares and concerns to fall into proper perspective, Lord, knowing that you've got it all. That if we've got you, if we've got Jesus, you are more than enough. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. 
Amen. Well, be blessed, be blessed, be blessed. And please, as you go forth into the week, um, hold on to what God gives you. Um, God has 